Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, I think we're ready to roll. Um, Hello, everyone. Thank you for um, coming along to the the public launch of of Where There's a Will. Um, Uh, I'm actually nervous, and I never get nervous public speaking, so this this must be something meaningful. Um, I also still... I, I don't live in London anymore, but I feel as though this is a home crowd, so this, this is quite exciting. Um, thank you for coming and filling the room to such a massive, sweaty, embarrassing extent. Um, uh, my plan with uh, with this event was effectively to dodge the limelight as much as I could by inviting a lot of other speakers to to join me. Um, I've done this for for two reasons, um, which have both escaped me. (laughs) I'll I'll warm up, I'll warm up. So... um, One, the, the, first, the first reason is um, I've been saying for years, and with this book, I have tried to find different stories to tell about cycling. So um, there are a lot of cycling books. If you go into Waterstones, you go to the cycling section, there'll be a couple of shelves. Half the spines are yellow, and half the books are along the lines of man wins race. Um, <laughs> And that is a cycling book. And if you Google top cycling books, you'll get a whole page of lists of books about men winning the Tour de France. And actually, like a lot of them are really good. I've read most of them. Um, they are great. Um, but that's not really my experience. Um, and, you know, I think most of the people in this room probably ride a bike and I think it's probably not yours as well. And I make it my business to read anything anyone writes about cycling. And oh my goodness, there is so much that you can say. Um, so with the book I've just written, and you can be the judge of this when you come to read it, I've tried to write something that sort of stepped away from the usual narratives about kind of struggle and pain and victory, because we've heard them all before. And I think if there's a danger when you know we all read the books about the men winning the races we start to think, well, that's the way it has to be. So you go for your own bike ride and you think, here I am, you know, I'm Eddie Merckx, I'm on the tourmalet, I'm in pain, I'm going to crash or whatever it is that happens. Um, Whereas when I go for a ride, um, sometimes those are the stories I tell myself and then I think, no, 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 that's that's actually not what's happening. I'm feeling different, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling confused, I'm feeling a struggle that is not actually pain. So I've tried with this book to tell a different story and the reason I've invited all three of these other speakers is that they have all very successfully stepped a long way aside of the kind of conventional mainstream narratives we've been given about cycling and given us something else to think about I think all of these speakers in their own very distinctive way have shown us where bicycles can take us be that physically be that socially be that creatively, be that academically, be that politically. I mean, you know, I could go on. So that's that's the first um, reason I've chosen this format. The second one is quite simply, I wanted to acknowledge what, I say this with a lump in my throat, what an incredible community we are all part of. 
um, I read a line in a book a few years ago, and I can't even remember the book, but it was, uh, it said, uh, cycling is a fusion of, I think, the, you know, the technical, the aesthetic, the social, and I can't even remember. It brings so much together, and it brings so many people together. And we're all connecting, not just over bikes, we're connecting over literature, we're connecting through stories, we're connecting through a fondness for beer, and all of the other things that we're standing and sitting in this room discussing tonight. Um, and I couldn't have written the book that I'm just publishing without the support of the community of cyclists that I'm part of and the community of writers within and without that um, who have been around me while I was writing it and who have inspired me and reassured me and made me realise just how far I can go. Um, so I'd like to thank the people here on the stage with me and some of the people, all of the people, but the writers here in the audience and all of the, the wonderful spectrum of people who are writing such original, brilliant, creative stuff around cycling. Um, it's a really exciting thing to be part of. And my book is kind of just one stitch in the tapestry. Um, so I will plug frequently during this event, but all of the speakers here have books on sale tonight. And, you know, mine is great, buy it, buy many. Um, but also... <laughs> Um, theirs are fantastic and have been part of mine. So really, I think you should buy them all. Um, so with, uh, the plan was not to talk very much, by the way, I've already failed in that. Um, I'm going to, uh, invite, uh, Kat, the first speaker to, um, to tell us, um, her version of how we tell new stories about cycling. Um, I'm probably going to say the same thing about each writer, which is just that they are brilliantly inspiring and ingenious and original. Um, and I should probably just allow them int to introduce themselves. I wouldn't normally do this. I'd normally wax lyrical, but um, <laughs> Kat, you're really brilliant. Um, <laughs> that, please, that's a great please, start. Please forgive me for the, the lack of more extensive and effusive compliments and take it away. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you so much for the invitation to be part of this panel and to be part of this event. I would have been here anyway, but it's an incredible honour to be up here on the stage with all of you. So, unsurprisingly, I'm going to start, first of all, with bikes. So, if you only ever read popular and broadsheet media, apart from a few notable exceptions, such as Laura's Lakers writing, which is terrific, you'd probably think there was only one kind of cycling and one kind of storytelling. It's a story about bikes that is defined by speed, a top-spec, high-tech machinery, about winning, about suffering, about a type of cyclist who is mostly lean, lycra-clad, and more often than not, man-shaped. And this story definitely exists, but it's not the only story. Cycling has never been single-storied, or this narrow, or one-dimensional. It has always been multiple and diverse complex, messy and marvellous and made up of all kinds of bodies riding all kinds of bikes with all kinds of interests and skills and desires. And a lot of my research has been around finding and piecing together and retelling not new stories but old stories about amazing women who fought incredibly hard to cycle in the 1890s and helped to forge many of the social and political freedoms that we enjoy today. And the whole last chapter of the book that I wrote is about why, cycling, why different cycling stories matter. Because when stories are missing, we don't know what other ways of doing things are possible. And if we aren't represented and we don't see ourselves, we often can't imagine ourselves doing stuff. It seems to be for others, not for us. And we may feel we have to reinvent things constantly, an exhausting proposition that might prevent us from even trying. And even when we know women and other marginalised people who have done amazing things, it's hard to build on the past when their achievements aren't recorded or, are, or they keep getting erased. So cycling's history has been written predominantly as an account of men's relationships um, with technology. And when women do appear in this long narrative, um, they are often consigned to the role of onlookers or ornamental spectators um, and their contributions and achievements are very often overlooked or diminished. So basically what I and other cycling scholars are trying to do is really bring to light some of these remarkable narratives and challenges um, to these heroic norms and to augment them with more texture and nuance. 
So my research, if you see the bright pink book in the corner there, is about the important role that women played in early cycling cultures as riders, but also engineers, designers and radical feminist inventors actively driving social and technical change. So what I argue in that is that it, they just add these important textures and, and layers to cycling histories in order for us to imagine and make different futures. And I really believe that Emily's book is really continuing this legacy, putting into print and on the page other ways that cyclists, and particularly women cyclists, can be in the world. Capturing life on two wheels and sharing with us the unique experience of ultra-endurance racing. And building on the important brave and tireless work of those who've gone before and providing yet another layer and texture to cycling stories. So where do good bike stories come from? What are they made of? Well, the bike itself has remained remarkably unchanged for the last 100 years, but it has a remarkable power to catalyse change in us. We are irrevocably changed by bicycles, individually, collectively, socially, politically. Um, and this is why I think they're so powerful, but they're also quite threatening to many. So what makes a good bike story? And there's a lot in Emily's book that makes up good bike stories. So bike stories, um, good bike stories are often about change. So bikes really change us physically. They shape our bodies. Regardless of what kind of cycling you do, you learn very quickly what you can do, what you can't, what you, what things not to do. Skill levels improve, our fitness grows, and our confidence blossoms. And you say, well, if I somehow manage to do that, then maybe I can do something else. And maybe, as Emily did, you might suddenly find yourself saying out loud um, that you want to enter the TCR. <laughs> Bikes change what we think is possible. They also change us emotionally. They take us into new territories of feelings, spanning happiness, contentment, fear, pure joy, exhilaration, and devastating fatigue to taste what Emily's called the many flavours of tiredness which inhabit every inch of your being, even bits of your body you didn't even know could get tired. And she talks about um, how you start to lose this buffer between you and your emotions. You can't avoid or bury them. You just have to have them, to feel them, to cycle through them. And I love this bit in the book. I'm going to quote you, I'm sorry. Um, where she cycles through a lot of tears. You know, she says, I have always been anxious to keep myself from crying in situations like this. Imagining that I, if I gave in to tears, it would all be over. And my final remnants of strength and resolve would be swept away in the ensuing tide of salt water. Then I made a discovery that surprised me. This wasn't the end after all. It would be easier next time, I told myself. I thought I was about to lose it. Next time I'll know, it's just the crying stage. So not all of us can do what Emily and TCRs do, but we know in our own experiences that cycling increases our sense of self. It expands what we think is possible and we're capable of. And bikes are the conduit to help us connect not only to ourselves and to others, to share the intimacy of life by short and long rides and to feel intensely concentrated emotions in short, condensed periods, and also to process loss and grief. So this book, of course, is about connection and it's also about disconnection and about how our personal stories through cycling are often entangled with others. And Emily um, beautifully kind of narrates this experience. Um, uh, beautifully narrates this experience of ultra-endurance racing and how cycling demands much of us but also transforms us. We see more and we want to be more. So inspired by her book, I did return to some of Mike Hall's inspiring words. And he says that adventure is not necessarily about roughing it. It's about doing what scares you a little bit. And people can have adventure in their daily lives. And when you do this, your map grows. And every time you get the map out, it gets bigger and you can go further afield. And you can say, I can go there and I can do this. Behind. Okay, sorry. <laughs> So, um, bikes also expand our appetites. And chapel appetite plays a really key role in <laughs> I'm glad I got this in first. 
I personally thought the book should have been called Where There's a Will, There's a Pizza. (laughs) Or alternatively, Hope, Grief, Endurance and Snacks. Um, Emily talks a lot about food in here, like any good cyclist. And I I was going to actually mark them off in the book, but then I realised I didn't have enough time for that. And (laughs) nobody has enough time for that. And I actually had a few snacks while I was reading the book. But we all know that food and cycling go incredibly well together. They are definitely the stuff of good stories. And also, you know, bikes, of course, change us socially. We meet through bikes. As Emily was saying, we learn to build and fix bikes. We stop and help people along the way. We co-journey with friends who invite us to contemplate things we may not actually do on our own. Or we simply hang out with like-minded cyclists. Cycling can often feel individual, one person, one bike, but cycling is always held in tension with the collective. Um, We make bike stories with others. And Emily is mostly riding solo in the book, and yet she makes it very clear to us that she is never alone. She talks about an invisible peloton, drawing on the strength of others to inspire you in times of vulnerability and um, hardship. And I heard you talk recently about this in the Wheel Suckers podcast, which was really good. And if anyone, this is Alex and Jenny's great podcast. And if you haven't heard it, I really <laughs> encourage you. And again, it made me think about the wonderful spirit of cycle racing in the TCR, which I paraphrase my call very briefly here when he says that the TCR can't capture, the real book can't capture all the circumstances because there's so many factors, so many variations, the possibility of adventure that makes it exciting but difficult to predict what will happen. So riders are encouraged um, to ride in the spirit of self-reliance and equal opportunity, to be fair to each other, and I think that applies to all of cycling. Um, But, of course, not all cycling stories are made on the road. They're made in the preparation, in the worrying, in the feelings afterwards and the reflection. And what happens when you go back to ordinary everyday life? That leads me to just the second part of this talk, which is about books, I'm bound to be a fan of books as an academic. It's kind of a central part of the job. I read them, I teach them, I write them. But I think books are even more important today than ever before in this age of constant updates in fake news and disappearing digital traces. Um, For writers, books provide time to think about things in depth and detail and explore and experiment. Writing, like writing, is quite hard work, right? It's a form of endurance. But for readers and all of us, it gives us a chance, I think, to get as close as many of us will to ultra-endurance riding. We can actually, with um, Emily, we get to ride along with her, along magnificent roads, along a lot of gravel trails. (laughs) Yes. Lots of muddy tracks, bivvying in fields, all from the comfort of our our sofa. And I loved also this when you're reflecting on your first TCR when you said you'd never raced before and you understood it came with its own grammar. Bicycle touring was in your bones, but with bicycle racing, you seem to have married into a family whose language you didn't yet speak. But she learns it and she shares it with us. Um, She doesn't shy away from either. She tells us what happens on the bike, what also happens when she gets off. Um, And she's able to kind of write about those experiences and feelings and to reflect on them. And this is incredibly important, especially for women's cycling stories, which we kn- I know firsthand haven't been given the importance that they're due. So just very briefly, finally, I want to end on bloody amazing women because it's an honour to be part of this cycling community in London. I know cycling authors, I know races and ultra-endurance ultra athletes now, which is very exciting, um, tourers, event organisers, makers, um, breakers, fixers, and, of course, lots of riders. And everyone in their own way contributes to make this a rich and diverse community with practice and support and stories. And Emily's book provides a really valuable perspective into a particular form of cycling that many of us would never get that insight. It's amazing, it's exhilarating, it's painful, and to be honest, sometimes pretty gross as well, getting first-hand into it. But she also provides this view which is very different to the usual cycling stories, as she pointed to. She tells us about things that don't work, about the inner monologue that niggles. They invite us to think differently, to imagine alternatives and to do stuff, maybe things we didn't even contemplate before. And story makers aren't just other people, of course. We're all making stories. So the kind of questions I just want to end on are what stories are all of you making now and what stories are you leaving for future generations?
Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kat. Um, I, I wasn't expecting your talk to be so much about me. I was hoping you'd tell us about Victorian women, but uh, <laughs> I have no control over these things. I would also like to point out that um, editorial feedback on the book during the writing process was, please, can you cut out more of the food descriptions? There are still too many. So what you read is a, a slimmed down version. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm now going to invite uh, Max to speak. Um, and again, I will fail to give you a florid introduction. But Max really is, in some ways, I think one of the most original cycling authors I know. Every single book that he writes or publishes is this kind of really obvious idea that no one's had before. And everyone thinks, why did I not think of that? That is genius. Um, and then you read it and you think, I'm so glad he thought of that because he's such a wonderful writer. So um, if you're blushing sufficiently, I shall allow you to... Um... Where, where can I go after that? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Emily. Um, um, I have some pictures to show as well. Is, is this going to happen? Yes. Uh, it, thanks, Alex. It, it's not... Uh, I'll just sort of ablib while it all happens. Um, I mean... I think Emily's right. We we need new stories. The whole man wins race thing. Um, I mean, you're right. I like it. I actually wrote a book about the last guy in the Tour de France. So I did. I did man loses race. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also a pretty old story. I mean, it's it's either success or failure. That's that kind of thing. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, ah, there we go. I don't know if everyone's going to be able to see this, and maybe I need to describe it for, um, for the masses that are watching us on, online somewhere. But this might be something you like too, Kat. This is a, a picture of the, a book cover from 1899 um, called Cycling the Alps, a Practical Guide, and there's four cyclists on the front and two men, two women in kind of normal clothes. And I guess I wanted to put that up there just to show that... Um, We've been telling stories about cycling in, in books for a really long time, and, and actually maybe in 1899 they were more enlightened or telling different stories than we are now. Um, but when my first book came out 10 years ago now, I was definitely not a mammal, a middle-aged man in Lycra. Um, I don't think the word mammal had even been thought of then, but you know, as the years pass, it's more and more kind of incontrovertible that uh, that's, that's what I'm getting towards. Uh, or am. I could just say I am. So that's, that's fine with me. Um, and so I guess my writing has been about the Tour de France. It's been about road cycling. It's been about landscapes and that kind of thing. And always dipping in and out of the kind of mainstream of, of cycling culture. And, oh, I should also just say I'm very pleased and also flattered to be the only man on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> never, it, it's, it's lovely to be here and it never actually usually happens. So, so this is a... It's, yeah, I mean, I'm the token mammal, which is great. Um, um, but yeah, and I, but I think in... in you know, and I will talk about the you know, mainstream, you know, sporty male Tour de France thing a bit. Uh, I think it's it's in a difficult place now. Um, it's it's a difficult place, but it's also interesting. I think Emily touched on it. I think there's been way too many books, uh, way too many kind of biographies, autobiographies. It's been oversaturated. Um, magazine articles are quite often just a, a vehicle for pictures, which is which is fine. But I mean, it means that magazine articles aren't always sort of super interesting. Um, and I, th I just have had the feeling over the past few years that there's kind of barrels being being scraped, and um, that this is maybe just a very personal look at it. But that's uh, that's my impression. Um, can we change a slide? Can we do that? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, I, I thought I'd put my face up big on the screen um, just to give Emily a bit of a rest from having hers up there. <laughs> but but uh, this is from a, a Rafa video quite a long time ago that I was in with Sam Humpherson of Look Mum No Hands. And this was a sort of the era of the pain face and, <laughs> you know, riding in the rain and the, and the glory through suffering thing. And, and you know... That was a moment in time, and it was it was sort of great and uh, an interesting thing to be a part of. But I'm not sure if, if you know that we you know it's something we've done and we've been through, and I don't think we need to see it anymore. And Rafa, who I only have I have nothing but love and good feelings towards them, uh, they don't do that anymore particularly. But you know, it's just this was a thing. But somehow, kind of mainstream cycling stuff is sort of still in in that place and. I didn't, uh, to be honest, I didn't really like being in one of those films, at least at the time, because I felt there was too much of looking at people's faces, which um, is completely the opposite experience of what you get when you're cycling. Uh, (laughs) If anything, you see people's asses. um, (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, at the time I I was saying, well, well, imagine if you could make a film but without showing any people or any bikes. Uh, or what if you wrote a book about cycling that didn't show any bikes or any people? And, and I still think that's, that's true and that's a, that could be interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, how abstract do you want to get, I guess? Um, another slide, maybe? Um, I only put this slide in because I wanted to not have my face up there for too long. Um, but yeah, I think you know we're at kind of nationally and in, in the kind of national mood, we're at the end in the end of an era of, of where we're at with cycling. I think you know we had this whole beautiful wave of sports stuff going on that went through the Olympics and with Chris Hoy and Victoria Pendleton and that kind of thing, and you know Bradley Wiggins winning the tour and Chris Froome, and we were all very proud and it was amazing. But they're retiring or they've retired. Uh, that moment has gone. Um, what's happening in Manchester with Dr. Freeman at the moment is not good at all, as far as I can tell, and that's not going to reflect well on anyone, and it's, it's kind of disillusioning. Um, but I think, aside from that sort of dark side of it, I think you, know, you, you do something for a while, you do road cycling, you do this, you do that, and, and after a while you say, well, what next? What, what do we do next? I mean, a lot of cyclists do that. I think writers do that as well. You don't do the same thing too many times. And, and I think that's you know, why there's kind of a more general interest in gravel and adventures and bikepacking and at the more extreme end in ultra-endurance. Because um, we've all done, well, not all of us, but you know, there's a generation that have grown up with this and then after a while you think, well, I need to do something else. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I just don't think... I can't see what there is in that kind of mainstream thing to talk about at the moment that's, that's not, um, not... I mean, doping is a thing, but that's it. And so, so, you know, Emily's book is taking us new places. The kind of, you know, magazines are going different places. There's off-road stuff. It's, it's, it's getting more interesting, I think, again. And, and it's a kind of logical ex- extension of everyone's passion. Um, anyway, to get back to the writing slightly... Um, I was just trying to think of the thing, you know, as I said, I've done a lot of 
some of Tour de France kind of things. I'm just thinking about the things of mine that I was kind of proud of and have a new slide. So this is, if you can't see, it's a picture of a snowplow um, in the middle of, uh, somewhere underneath about three metres of snow there, there's a road. And about five weeks after this picture, the Giro d'Italia was racing along this road. And I thought this was a, just an interesting story. It was, uh, you know, I, it's a cycling story. How can you race along a road if the road's under three metres of snow? And nobody ever thinks about these guys who, who are up there and doing that. And actually, it's... It's a really uh, different perspective on the whole thing, and you can't have what we do in the mountains without someone to drive a snowplow and, and give you the tarmac that you need. Um, change the slide. So this is a shepherd that I was hanging out with for about a week. Um, again, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a person at the side of the road. Um, it's a guy who had 900 sheep, on the slopes of one of the most famous cycling col in the French Alps, and you know, I don't. You know, if you spend enough time riding uphill really slowly, you, you get to look around and you think, well, what's this person's life like? You know, why is this landscape like this? You know, even the top of the highest mountains in the French and Italian Alps are pretty much intensively managed and civilized in certain ways, and. So probably this guy's story and him and his sheep and the problems he has with wolves are just as much a cycling story as anything else. Um, new slide. Uh, this is a particular kind of specialist subject of mine. It's a picture of a bunker up in the middle of the mountains and um, without getting into kind of war and that kind of thing too much, it's the same question. It's, well, you know, why are there even roads here in the first place? You can't go road cycling without a road. And a lot of the roads in the Alps are sort of very beautiful, amazing bits of tarmac that link to completely middle-of-nowhere places. And why are they there? And, and how does this let us do the thing we like to do? And um, a lot of the history of the roads in France and Italy is about um, Napoleon and the Second World War and that kind of thing. And that's pretty much why they were improved and made like they are and and I am um, I got kind of obsessed by that but I can accept that's a very personal obsession um but yeah it's another cycling story I think um and so I guess if I was going to draw anything from this uh I was going to say you know what is it that you if, if you're looking for a story what, what is it that you can experience that nobody else does or where can you go with something um you know can you ride across 4,000 kilometers of Europe really fast um, and tell that story you know what are the things you can tell people that they haven't seen before because I think there's a lot of things that you know we get told that we've seen before um, one more slide uh, and I've been stuck I haven't been able to write I haven't thought of anything I'd like to write for ages so I've been making a photo book I just thought I'd show a couple of photos at the end um, give us another slide please and another. <laughs> so this is a, a group of cyclists called the Rough Stuff Fellowship. They're, they're the... <laughs> they're the kind of oldest off-road cycling club in the world, pretty much. They were formed in 1955. And what I really love... And I've made a photo book with them and um, spent a lot of time talking about them and researching, and we've made a book of about 20,000 very beautiful old pictures that we chose the best of. And what I really like about it, aside from them being very beautiful photos, is just everyone in the pictures uh, looks like they're having a good time. And it's just fun. And I think you know, you, there's a certain sort of current in cycling that makes you want to take, makes you think you should take it too seriously. And I was at an academic conference a little while ago um, where someone was saying, oh, you know, with your training programs and power meters and regimes and this kind of thing, what you're basically doing is taking a leisure activity and making it into work. So you, know, you work all week in, a, in an office or you do your work and then at the weekends you just work at something else and you try and treat it the same. And, and I don't think that's really my spirit and I don't think that's your spirit too, Emily. And um, I just was going to leave it there really. I just thought that you know, we should just remember that this is fun. So, thanks.
Thank you, Max. That was brilliant, as always. Uh, can we keep that slide up for the rest of the evening, please? Because, uh, I mean, life goals. <laughs> that gravel road? Yeah. That, I'd say that's kind of gravel plus. <laughs> that's the point where you kind of admit that you actually are lost. <laughs> so um, the final speaker is Jules Walker, whose book was published earlier this year. Am I right? And was, I think, probably the most eagerly awaited cycling book of the year. Um, <laughs> I, no, no one won any races. It was great. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I'm really happy that you're here on stage with us tonight, Jules. Um, thank you so much for coming. And um, please don't say too many nice things about me. <laughs> Immediate fail on that is going to happen. <laughs> Um, I just want to first and foremost say that it's an honour to be up here with all of you and especially Emily because the fact that you're giving oh no, I'm not, I'm not saying you off, I'm sorry um, the fact that you're giving voices to, to other people in cycling and affording us this platform on what's your big night is testament to how amazing you are so thank you so much thank you um, yes, round of applause for Emily <laughs> See, I remember the first time that I met Emily, and it was at the Oakley pop-up um, in Exmouth Market. So, yes, so it was after your first attempt at the, the Transcon, and it was part of the London Bike Kitchen takeover that had happened there as well. So one of the, the early WAG events that had happened. I was invited to speak on a panel, and I hung around until the end of the day for the, the big talk that was going to be Emily talking about taking on the transcontinental. And I was so in awe of you. <laughs> I was probably... Like, my first thought was, why, why does she even know who I am? Like, this is Emily Chappell. Like, I was proper starstruck uh, at meeting you. And then, like, you know, it's like, I have to have a picture taken with you at the end of the talk as well. And it was listening to you talking about how hard it was. And just your raw honesty with that just completely knocked me sideways. And, you know, I, I should say never say never. I, you know, I, I read your book and I felt like I went on the journey with you. The first journey with um, what goes around and then the second journey with uh, where there's a will. And I kind of felt like I'd done the transcon by the end of reading it as well, which was incredible. And again, testament to the power of your words and your storytelling. I don't know if I personally have something like that in me at all. I mean, I went camping for the first time on my own this summer and that was an experience <laughs> I've, I've always made the joke and said to my partner Ian who is a keen cyclist as well and a keen camper if we were married if we went like touring together and camping it may end in divorce I don't know but I gave, I gave it a try I gave it a try <laughs> yeah, something like that maybe but um it was just the, the strength in your words and your courage and your honesty is something that even from that first talk that I saw you at that stayed with me. And further down the line, little did I know that I was going to end up having the opportunity to write a book myself. I knew immediately, I have to get Emily in my book. I have to talk to her. She has to be one of the women that I've got to speak to because you're one of these powerful voices that can do so much and change the narrative that surrounds cycling as well. And it was super important for me when I did Back in the Frame to be able to, to give a platform to other women in there too. So Emily is one of the women that, that I interviewed. Um, Jenny Gwizdowski of London Bike Kitchen, I interviewed her. Jackie Ma of Good Ordering, I interviewed her as well. Adeline Omaro behind um, McCready Bikes, interviewed her too. Aisha McGowan, who's still on a mission to become the first professional uh, African-American female cyclist, interviewed her for the book as well. And it's like... All of these women have these incredible stories to tell. And, you know, through the power of social media and blogs and things like that, we do have those platforms. But sometimes it can still feel like that you're banging on a glass ceiling to be able to get your story out there. 
because of the, the narrative and the ideas that surround what cycling is, what you're supposed to look like to be able to be a cyclist, what you're supposed to have in you to be able to do that, it's distressing sometimes. It's depressing a lot of the time as well. And especially when nobody is listening to your voice to try and change that, you can feel like you're banging against a brick wall. And in writing Backing the Frame, just being able to, to give those voices to other women, I was hoping that that would be a springboard out there for like a sort of spider effect. So I've spoken to them in my book. You've gone away and read the book. You now know about these women. You're now going out there and talking to other people about these women and discovering more about them too. So, you know, Backing the Frame allowed me to be able to do that and to be able to tell my own story in cycling which I still say is being written. Like, I haven't come to the end of my cycling journey in any way, shape, or form. This, being up here, being with all of you, talking to all of you, is part of the journey. Part of the journey is extending what I've always lovingly referred to as my cycling family, because that's how it's been for the last nine years, that every single one of you in here, if you like it or not, are now my family as well. And that's the incredible power of, of the bike, the fact that it takes you beyond... The physical, the, the friendships, the connections, the, the whole journey that it, it takes you on is something that I cherish and will treasure forever, along with every single person that I've met, along with every single story that I've heard, along with every single story that I'm then able to share as well. And for me, I, I do actually count myself as being a bit of an introvert, even though I've been putting myself out there with the, the book and TV work and things like that. Cycling brought me out of my shell. And I wanted to express that to as many people as possible that, as cliched as it sounds, cycling changed my life. You know, watching my sister riding around on her bike when she was a, a, a young girl and then going into her teens meant a lot to me because it gave her a level of freedom. And she also had a very, I say it in the book, I don't give a fuck attitude. Um, when she was out on her BMX in the, the like late 80s, like, sorry, the late 70s, early 80s, she was out on her bike. As a young black girl in East London on a BMX, she got a hell of a lot of stick for it. But I had so much respect for the fact that she just carried on with it and powered on through because that was her gateway to freedom. That was her joy and nobody was going to take that away from her. You know, unfortunately, the thing that happened with, with a lot of women and young girls is that, you know, you fall out of love with it. There are some factors that are applied to it. Your friends aren't cycling anymore. It's not that cool. We're all going to learn how to drive. Or you just don't have that confidence. That happened to my sister. When I inherited that BMX, I saw to God that wasn't going to happen to me. And when I hit 18, the same thing did happen. And it just felt depressing that history was repeating itself in that sense. And I had 10 years of nothingness in, in that point where I stopped at 18 and got back on a bike at 28 years old and for me that was a big deal to do it partly because I needed to get that joy and that freedom and that release back again and partly because I was entering into a world that interesting enough once upon a time when I was a child it just felt sort of carefree that you could just be out there on your bike enjoying yourself and the older I got and the more conscious I got of not seeing anybody like myself reflected in that industry and in that world just kind of felt like, well, this isn't a place for me. But just as what you said earlier, Kat, in the sense of if you can't see it, then how are you expected to be it? I thought to myself, well, as much as when I got back on a bike and I wanted to do Velo City Girl to be able to share my stories with people, and there was the, the big thing with the blog is that it started off as like a sort of fashion blog as well. Um, I actually wanted other people to be able to look and think if you're at this point in your journey and you need that little bit of encouragement or something to push you along, let me be the stabilizers on your bike to get you doing it again or anything that you feel like you want to be a part of. Just see somebody that you can recognize and identify with is so important. And I'm still seeing that, you know, within the industry there is changes there are some of the bigger brands out there that are doing things and changing their image around it as well, which is so important. And just to reflect on what you were saying, Max, about Rafa, I'd done some work and I'm doing some work with Rafa. And, you know, for me, I've admired and loved Rafa for a very long time. But I've also been very honest and said, well, I don't really see anybody like myself in your marketing and your advertising. I love your stuff, but I don't think this is actually for somebody like me. 
And them actually sitting down and having this conversation with me and giving me not a seat at the table and taking it away, but actually having this conversation and working together on things and working on how to widen participation. For me, somebody like Rafa doing that was huge. And for, for me, who I still think of myself as being sat in my little corner of the internet doing stuff with my bike, felt like a big deal as well. So, you know, even stuff like seeing myself as one of the women in the campaign for the Women's 100, that was huge because, you know, I was um, with um, Annalena, who was an amazing cyclist that I was doing the shoot with. And instead of looking at her and thinking, oh, my God, I'm not built like her. I don't have that kind of physique. I don't have that kind of strength on the bike. I was just like, I'm having a billboard time doing this, actually. This is, this is great. I'm here. And so many other people are going to see my face on this campaign and enjoy it as well and hopefully take something from it. So that meant a lot. So in regards to changing that narrative and being able to, to tell different stories is so important. It's going back to you again, Emily, with what you're, <laughs> what you're doing and changing that narrative. Like even just like I said before, this, this is a huge deal to be part of something so huge with your second book and being up here and being able to share our stories on your night is a huge deal. So again, it's just changing what people are expecting or what people think cycling is about. So that's what I want to continue doing. I know that's what everybody up here wants to continue doing as well. So if we can keep on disrupting the narrative and changing the status quo and just being ourselves because every single one of you in this room has a story different to the person next to you, but you've all got wheels in common. That's the thing that's all joining us, and that's the thing that's making us all family. And us all using any platforms that we've got to be able to talk about what our own experiences is. You know, like I've used my blog and I've used my book to, to talk about how I dealt with my own instances of, of grief, like when I lost my grandmother when I was 16 and how my relationship with cycling kind of went up and down at that point. Being able to talk about my own depression, living with depression, growing up with a parent who suffers, not suffers, lives with depression as well, and how my relationship with cycling has gone up and down with that. There were times when all I wanted to do was get on my bike and escape, there were other times when I couldn't even drag myself out of bed. So the idea of doing something like that, like getting on a bike when it was the last thing that I wanted to do, it was terrifying at first to be able to talk about that because I saw that as a sign of weakness because Lady Velo does the bike thing. Lady Velo is out there being an advocate for cycling. Lady Velo can't even stand the idea of putting a bum on a saddle and riding a couple of miles down the road. And that's okay to be able to talk about it and to be able to be honest and share your stories. So that's why reading your books, hearing you, because I said this to you before, that I was reading your book and I felt like I could hear you reading it to me, that means so much because you're encouraging other people to be able to open up and talk. And I cannot thank you enough for that. So thank you for giving me the platform up here and thank you for being you. I'm, I'm aware this is just turning into a massive loving, but uh, <laughs> I really, um, I think more than many, if any other books that have been published, watching the, the reactions to Jules's book this year has been wonderful because I've seen again and again on Instagram and on Twitter, people kind of say, oh my goodness, this is a story about my experiences. I, I didn't realize this was good enough to be in a book. I didn't realize I was actually a cyclist. You know, I, I've, I've never even entered a race, let alone won it. And people are identifying this and realizing, oh, my goodness, I am part of the family. Um, and that has been brilliant. You know, I, I identified so much with Jules's book. I cried most, of, not most of the way through it, but at very regular <laughs> intervals through it. Um, I, too. Um, oh, my goodness. Stage. It, yeah, there were quite a few, quite a few crying <laughs> stages. Um, back in, uh, I think it must have been 2006, 
I bought my first bicycle off the internet. Helena will remember this. I had it in my room for like a month. I was hanging washing on it. Uh, just like you did. <laughs> bras. I was hanging bras off of my bike as yeah. well. So. <laughs> they have many uses. I was too scared to ride it. Um, so, uh, and I hadn't really thought about that for years or admitted to it. Thank you for bringing that out in the open. Um, so we're, we're going to have a few uh, sort of questions and or discussions. We will definitely not have time for everyone's questions, for which I apologise, um, unless you're all struck dumb by our brilliance and aren't going to ask any. Um, so forgive me for not getting round everyone, and uh, we're all going to be here all night. Um, we will be, after this, signing our books over in the corner there somewhere and uh, being reclusive and introverted. Um, and you can ask us questions then, we will be trapped. Um, so uh, we have a roving mic with Alex. If anyone has a question, like this person here, please indicate clearly and the mic will come to you. So it's, it's not really a question. It's more the fact that it's Kat's birthday in Australia now. So I feel like we probably should sing happy birthday to her. <laughs> Kept that quiet. Okay. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear cat. Happy birthday to you. That's definitely my cycling family. Thank you very much. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 